so guys, today we're going to continue in our series in Daniel. Uh, we're in chapter 5 today, but before we do that, I want to pray. Lord, we, uh, again, we just thank you for this opportunity as your church, uh, gather as your bride. I pray that as we open the page of Daniel today, that you would, and, and open the word, um, that you would speak to us. You would share the, the, or that your spirit would confirm the things that we need to hear, different than what our neighbor needs to hear. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts um, as we engage your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, I'm, you know what I'm going to do, guys? This feels really low to the ground for me, so I'm going to try to adjust it really quick. I might not be able to. Okay, there it is. I'm just weak. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we've been in Daniel. This is our, f uh, we're in chapter five. We've been walking through the story of Daniel. Um, Daniel, as you know, was a exiled youth. Um, the, the Babylonian Empire came and, and wiped out his, his uh, home country of Judah in Jerusalem, took him and others into the king's courts, and God used him and his friends and their faith mightily within the Babylonian Empire, within the king's courts. And uh, to this point, we've been looking at a king named Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about his conversion last week that God actually got to the heart of this tyrant. And we're going to continue today um, by looking at another king in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar. And what we're going to see today is that we are called to live within the limits that God has set. Now, when I tell... All right. Um, when I tell you that God wants to uh, live within limits, I don't know how that hits you. But I know that all of us have a natural aversion to limits. Like, nope, I'm, I, I don't need your limits. Um, I don't need you to tell me what to do. We tense up. Um, that sound, might sound old school to us. Like, ah, I, don't, I don't like that idea of living within limits because we've been trained from a very young age to live unlimited lives. And what I mean is, I don't know about you, but I remember when I was going to school, they used to say stuff like, reach for the stars. Reach for the stars. I don't know if they really thought about that statement very much. Now, the closest star to us is the sun, and I'm pretty sure if you reach for it, you would burn up. Um, I actually did some research on that and uh, found out this, that there's a NASA research scientist named Eric Christian. He said that it might be possible someday to design a vessel that could safely take human astronauts within four million miles of the sun. So just be careful what you tell your kids, is what I'm trying to say. Reach for the stars, really? You might be, you might, we're 93 million miles away, so. But it's that idea of, oh, unlimited, right? Unlimited potential. And, um, you know, we, some, sometimes we fantasize about living a life without limits, whether that's unlimited finances, whether that's unlimited freedom, unlimited talent, unlimited time. We all kind of fantasize about that. Like, what if I could live an unlimited life? And kind of in that sense of being unlimited, there's like a sense of freedom. Like, if I could just live in an unlimited way. So as I, I'm, I know I'm not, super old here, but uh, I am approaching middle age. Believe it or not, I am approaching middle age. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Love that. Uh, and as I get closer, as I get closer, I realize how limited I am 
you know how, my perspective at age 38 is different than it was at age 22 right I realize I'm limited in gifting I'm limited in my ability to pastor. I'm limited in my, uh, what I can do as a Christian. And also, as I've gotten older, I've realized, hey, um, there are better pastors than me. There are better um, people who are better at marriage and raising kids and all these different things, right? And so um, you kind of realize your limits. Um, I think at age 22, I was really thinking like, man, what's the next mountain to climb? I was really trying to self-actualize. Like, how could I be the very best version of myself that I could possibly be? And then life comes, and it's like, actually, you have all this stuff to, to deal with all the time. <laughs> it's really hard to self-actualize when life sneaks up. But now that I am, uh, you know, older, I cherish the moment more. I cherish my family more. I cherish where God has me more than in the past when I was just thinking about the future and what do I need to accomplish. I can, I can live in the moment more. And I pray that that continues because God's limits are actually not restrictive. They're for our good. They're for us to flourish in life. And so that's what we're going to look at today because more than anything, God wants us to be anchored in reality and not a fantasy. God wants us to be anchored in his reality and not the reality that we create. Sometimes when our reality doesn't match the fantasy world that we want, we, we do things like turning to vices. We do things like disassociating. We do things that end up hurting us because we want the two to come together. And God's invitation is to live within his reality. So here, this is what we need to realize today. We, need, we can either live within the limits God has set or we will suffer outside of them. In the limits God has set, we will suffer outside of them. And we're going to look at this example in Babylonian named Belshazzar. Four, we looked at how King Nebuchadnezzar was this great tyrant, huge empire, most, you know, beautiful empire ever, according to scripture, um, you know, built this amazing empire, how his pride got the best of him, and God had to, to knock him down. But he didn't knock him down to keep him down, he actually knocked him down so he would get on the same page with him, and God ends up restoring him to even a greater position materially and, and in power than he was before. But it went through a process of discipline. It went through a process of discipline, a long seven-year process of discipline. But in the end, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was restored. Now, this scene that we're going to read with Belshazzar happens 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. We know this because of Babylonian history. It's cool when scripture matches outside historical accounts. And that's what we have here in Daniel 5. If you wanted to study Babylonian history, you would learn about Nebuchadnezzar, and you'd also learn about Belshazzar. And so we know through history that this happens 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And uh, it, it also tells us that Belshazzar is not, um, is not Nebuchadnezzar's direct son, but there's been several unsuccessful kings that have had the throne, and now he's ruling in place of his father, whose name was Nabinidus. 
and uh, we know this. There's there's geological artifact or there's um, there's um, artifacts that people have found through archaeology. I actually saw one that that uh, helped prove the existence of Belshazzar when I was in London um, at the British Museum. Um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool how history matches scripture. Some of us are very literal, logical people. And, and we need to study and see, hey, is scripture true? Well, if you study archaeology, it helps make the case. You know, it helps show you that what you're studying in scripture matches the archaeological records, matches the historical accounts. And so Daniel at this time is about 80 years old. And he's lived in obscurity for about 20 years. Since Nebuchadnezzar died, he's kind of been pushed uh, to the fringes. And so what we have in Daniel 5 is a big banquet scene. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand nobles and drank all the wine. He ordered to bring in the gold and silver god Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had come from the temple in Jerusalem so that, the, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from now, just to say, just to pause real quick, uh, this word for father can mean father. It can also mean predecessor. So that's probably, probably predecessor. So anyways, continuing. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles. His wives and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. So here we have this king. He's throwing a banquet in this great hall. And what we know is that this is a time of unrest in the kingdom, that the Persian Empire is sort of on the, uh, Bab uh, Babylon's heels, ready to, ready to take over. And so what kings would do at that time is they would throw these impressive banquets to sort of win the favor of, of the, uh, the nobles. He has a thousand nobles here, a big party to show people who's in charge, right? To impress everybody and probably to make himself feel more secure. That's, that's what I think. Um, but he throws this giant party and it says that they were drinking wine. And while they probably did get a little crazy, that's actually that the real issue is actually something else that Belshazzar does. He orders... Uh, them to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So this is his attempt at being impressive, at pushing the line. Uh, this is what, th this is him testing God, but just showing these nobles that he's not afraid. Because Nebuchadnezzar learned to fear the Hebrew God. So they know that. They know that Nebuchadnezzar feared God. And here you have a king who's throwing caution into the wind, and he's going to do what he thinks is a good idea. Like, let's show this God who's boss. Let's grab the, the goblets from the temple. We'll drink from them. And uh, just, to, just to show God who's, or show this Hebrew God who's boss. That's something that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have thought of, dreamed of, or dared of. He respected the God of the Hebrews too much. 
but this young king throws caution into the wind. And, and even while he does it, he decides to toast to all the Babylonian gods. You know, using these goblets to toast all the Babylonian gods. He's living without limits, right? I can do whatever I want. I, I can tell off whatever god I want. Um, I, and, and he does that with this image of the goblets. He won't be restrained. He won't be limited. Now, if you want a theological word for what's happening here, it's the word blasphemy. And when we think of blasphemy, we might think of like Indiana Jones, right? I don't, maybe you don't, but that's where my, my mind goes sometimes. You know, don't pick the wrong grail, that kind of stuff. Um, but the word blasphemy sounds bad because it is bad. It is bad, um, but it's really not that complicated. Um, Bible scholar Tremper Longman said that blasphemy is the act of dishonoring God through speech or actions. It's like it's that simple. It's just when you make a deliberate choice to try to offend God. That's, that's basically the heart of what's going. So anytime we go out of our way to make a statement against God, we're in trouble. Now, I think we all have this weird thing as humans where we like to push the limits, test the limits. I experienced this driving. Anybody else experience this driving? So all of our extended family is down in Oregon, so we drive I-5 South a lot to go see family. And there's only one place I really need to stop when I'm driving that way, and it's Chick-fil-A in Tulalip. That's the only place I really need to stop. Otherwise, I just want to get there. My dad always told me, I think it's legal to drive as fast as everybody else around you is driving. <laughs> so I've kind of always lived by that principle, because that's what dad said. If dad said, it's probably accurate. Um, you know, within reason, I guess. But yeah, we always have, you know, I always want to push the limit, right? Push the limit. Bonnie always wants me to set cruise control. I'm like, no, I'm going the speed of traffic. So, but we can obviously push limits with other things, right? Whether it's drinking, whether it's language. Um, I've heard Christian leaders say, you know, oh, yeah, I have a theology of cussing. It's okay. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's okay. Like, aren't we supposed to bless and not curse? You know, I thought that was kind of in the Bible. Um, you know, we might test limits with, with the, the movies and shows we choose to watch. You know, oh, it's got a nude scene, but, you know, I'm strong. Eh, you're still human, right? Uh, come on. You know, or horror movies. It's demonic, but whatever. Are you, okay, are you sure? Why do you want to watch this, you know? We just have this tendency in us that wants to push the limits and say, ah, oh, it's okay. It's okay. A little bit more is okay. But I'm here to say not to be just a wet blanket, which I am being right now. I fully admit that. Uh, but God's limits are good. Therefore, you're good. God doesn't want you just in all the junk that's around you. He doesn't. He wants you free. He wants you to be able to not breathe that in, but breathe in the Holy Spirit. Breathe in his life. So, Belshazzar, he's, he gives us the impression that he's a young hotshot that's unlimited, no rules, um, just doing whatever he wants. He's charged up. He's around a, around a thousand nobles who are probably older than him, and he's the young guy that, like, needs to impress them. So he says, check this out. Let's take these sacred cups 
and drink from them. And he gives them to his wives and his concubines too, which I'm assuming he had a lot of them. And it didn't take long for God to respond here. It did not take long for God to respond. And I want to be clear about something. I don't think it was about the goblets. In fact, like the rest of scripture doesn't really talk about the goblets being that important. It was about the heart. It was about his motive. What is he trying to communicate with the goblets? What is he trying to communicate? It wasn't like there was anything holy about them specifically. It was just like he's trying to offend God. He's trying to offend God and be impressive around this whole group of people. It's all about the motive. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful, but he still had some fear for God. He still saw what God did and was like, okay, I'm, I'm not messing with this guy, <laughs> you know. He still had a little bit of hesitation, right? That hesitation is a good thing, but not Belshazzar, and God didn't mess around. In fact, a giant hand appears on the wall, writes into the plaster of the palace. Something happened here. As I was preparing this message, I thought of this verse from Proverbs that I think we all should know. It's a warning verse. It's kind of heavy, but I think it's imp important for us to, 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 to just have it. And, it. and it's Proverbs 29.1, and it says, Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Like, that's a harsh verse. There is, I just wanted to say, there is endless grace at the cross of Jesus. But you are not endless. Your time is not endless. We're finite, right? We're finite. And there comes a point when life is over. And this verse could mean being stubborn to the point that God has to break you. Or this verse could mean um, being real about how finite our days are. Either way, it's a warning that we can't stay stubborn with God. We can't hide from God. We can't make deals with God. We have to bring it out into the light. Now, God is patient, and he loves us, but God is also a God of justice. And so, if we're serious about following Christ today, we need to, we need to bring everything out into the light of Christ for him to work on our life and change us. In this situation, God did not mess around with Belshazzar in this scene. Now, the, 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 the tragedy of Belshazzar is that he already had the lesson in Nebuchadnezzar. He should have already seen the lesson, but he didn't. Now, in this scene, Belshazzar's arrogance quickly turns to terror when he sees the hand. In fact, the language, how it's written, implies that he soiled himself. There, I'm just being completely straight with you. So it's this image of, oh yeah, I've got it all under control to soiling yourself in front of a thousand nobles right? When God's presence shows up and we're outside of his control, it causes us fear, right? And so that's what happened with Belshazzar. Now, fortunately for us, we have an advocate. We have a savior in Jesus that we can call out to. Jesus is our pathway to forgiveness and right relationship with God. He will never turn us away when we call on him. We have that. We have that. That's not where Belshazzar's heart was at. 
Jesus saves us from this kind of wrath, right? Jesus saves us from this. And hopefully we never find ourselves in, in a similar situation. I, anybody see any hands right on walls other than your kids lately? Um, but anyways, what does Belshazzar do? So let's continue the story in verse 8. It says, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In, time, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what that writing means. So this is like the same thing over and over again in Daniel. The king gets freaked out. The king talks to his guys. His guys can't figure it out. So finally, he goes to Daniel. Finally, he goes to the truth teller. So he does that. Um, again, it's been about 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar died, and Daniel's just been kind of cast out from all that we can gather. But all of a sudden, they need him back. So Daniel comes in, and the king basically, in the next part, talks down to him. Like, hey, aren't you that exile? Kind of just talks down to him. And, uh, but then, at the end, he said, if you can tell me what this means, I'm going to give you the third highest position in the land, a purple robe, all the goodies, you know, whatever. Whatever the kings can give. And this is what Daniel says to the king in verse 17. And this is a, a long passage, so I'll try to not go, you know, I'll try to not speed read, but, you know, read through it. It says, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets, sets over them anyone he wishes. That's what we talked about last week as we went into Daniel 4. And what you'll see here is this is the tale of two kings. There's the king that's repentant and there's the king that's proud and remains proud. He continues... But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds his hand in your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, 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 Tekel, Parson. And here's what the words mean. 
Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed with in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler of the kingdom. So Daniel affirms this is the judgment of God. And he uses math terms. This is the, the words that were on the wall were math terms uh, because God loves math and the Babylonians love math. Um, they do, actually. They did, like historically. They did a lot of math. But anyways, there's, there's these numbers, and they proclaim the judgment of God. Like, it's over, Belshazzar. And, um, and the last verse is pretty sad. It says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at age 62. So God just, God dealt judgment. Now we might read this from our lens of grace and our hearts of grace and say, Why? Why didn't God give him another chance? And we have to actually go back. We have to go back to what Nebuchadnezzar said in chapter 4 because it, it points to the whole point here. Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion should have been Belshazzar's conclusion, but it wasn't. And that was an error. Uh, if, you go back to, um, if you go back to Daniel 4.37, this is Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion about all that's happened to him. He said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion. That was not Belshazzar's conclusion. We also need to realize that a lot of the people reading this had been oppressed by the Babylonian Empire. So the fact that God brought justice to an unjust king brought hope. Like, no, God, you've got this under control. We've been oppressed by, by this kingdom for a long time. And God, you brought justice in this situation. It, it, it's in your control. And so those who felt powerless in the midst of this giant empire found hope. Found hope because God is a God of justice. And as Nebuchadnezzar said, everything he does is right. His character is our line. His judgments are higher than our judgments. And he reveals his character consistently throughout history. The gospel tells us that his core is loving towards us. That's why he sent Jesus. He's, he, he, he does everything he can to reach us in his grace. But it remains our decision whether or not to receive that grace or not. God loves us, God wants us, but it's our decision. Will we receive that or not? Will we receive that or not? This story is a picture of, of someone pushing against the limits of God and finding out that, yes, indeed, God does have limits. And we can trust in, in God to, to hold the justice of the world. In fact, that's why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die so that he could forgive us for the un, uh, injustice that we've caused in our own hearts. Because it's n it, we would all have this same fate if it wasn't for Jesus. We would be resigned to the same fate if Jesus didn't enter into our story. If Jesus didn't die for us. If Jesus didn't pay the penalty of our sin. 
we would all be resigned to the same fate. God takes control so we don't have to. This is all God, all God initiated. Jesus didn't wait for us to ask him to come, he just came. He, he, he arrived on the earth to save us. So we can trust that he is good and that he knows it all. He sees the things we don't see. He sees my heart. He sees your heart. He sees the hearts of those in power right now. He knows it all more than we do. And so I just want to close with a couple of simple points, ones that point us towards Jesus. Because what I could do with this message is say, okay, everybody, do better, all right? Just do better. Just do better. And I don't know how many sermons you've heard that are do better sermons. I just want you to know that, like, we're talking about the gospel here, okay? And as Josh talked about, the gospel gives us life, and it's not a, a gospel of do better. It's, it's a gospel that Jesus did better for us. So this is, these are my last two points. When we submit control of our lives to God, he gives us life through his spirit. So the surrender that we need to do is we need to surrender our lives to God's control, right? Have a moment where we surrender. And you know what? Surrender is not a one-time thing. You might surrender, and then God might show you more stuff in your life to surrender, and he might do it again and again and again and again, and that's good. Like, that's called discipleship. It's called growing in Christ. That's called sanctification. You're a different person now because of Christ than you were five years ago, than you were ten years ago, and it just— gets you get you get to be more and more formed into the image of Jesus and that's a lifetime so it's not just about doing better it's about knowing him more and the truth the, the, the second part is this we can't live within the limits of God without his help that's the whole story of the old testament people trying and failing to live within the limits that God has set they just can't do it no one could and Romans 3 says that. No one is good, not even one. Nobody can fulfill the law. Nobody can keep it. Because we all want to test the limits. And so what I want to do today is instead of leave you with this picture of God's judgment, you also need to see the picture of the gospel, of the good news, because it's good news. And this is uh, Romans 8.1. I just want to read this. And in Romans 7, Paul talks about the futility of trying to live a good life without help. I can be a good person without God. It's like, it's impossible. I always choose, make the, make the wrong choices. But here's the good news in, in uh, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is very theological. But what it means is you are not condemned, and it's not because of anything that you've done. It's all because of what Christ done. What we could not do, it says Christ did. Done, finished. So what we get to do now is we get to live not according to the, the line of, oh my gosh, if I step outside the line, God is going to smite me. 
We get to live in the grace of Christ and, and live in the power and freedom of the Spirit. Actually, it's not about just changing your behavior. God wants to change your desires, what you want. Trying to ch change your behavior time and time again is a fruitless exercise. You actually need a heart change. And God knew that, and that's why he paid for all that stuff, and that's why he gave you the Spirit, so that your heart, what you actually want, would change. And you need to know this morning that, man, if you've, if you've been in that place where you feel like you've been living in opposition to God, that there is forgiveness and grace in Christ, right? That there's no condemnation for anyone who's under Christ, right? And it's not hard to get there. It's simply surrendering to him, giving your life to him, agreeing, um, believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord, right? And confessing with your mouth. That's what Romans 10 would say are the steps to salvation. So if, if you, uh, if, if I share this um, and you want prayer this morning, I want you to know that I'm available, that Bonnie is available. We'd love to pray with you and talk more about that. If you're at the place of making a decision, like, man, help, you know, help me, help me make this decision. We'd love to pray for you. But what we want to do today in response is end with communion. This, this is, um, this is a, called a sacrament. It's something sacred that Jesus gave us to remember what he's done for us, right? When we come to this table, we're reminded that Jesus has given us his body and hit, poured out his blood, and that that offering covers anything that would come against, come between us and God. It is complete forgiveness. It is complete freedom, and it gives us life. And so when we come to the table, that's what we receive. We don't take anything to it. It's not a potluck with God. Like, hey, God, I brought this salad. No, it's all about receiving. He broke the bread. He broke his body. He poured out his blood in our lives. So all we do at the table is receive. Now, Paul tells us that we need to drink it in a worthy manner, meaning that we shouldn't just come to the table flippantly and, and not realize, like, what it's all about. So um, if you haven't made a decision for Christ or you're, you're struggling, this, is, this might not be the moment to, to come and take communion, but if, if you believe and if you um, are, are ready to receive, it is here for you. So I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and, and then Brian's going to lead us. In music. Jesus, we just come before you this morning and we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that we're not resigned to the same fate, uh, God, as those who, whose hearts turned against you. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus. We're thankful for the gift of the Spirit. Lord, help us live in newness of life. We're not chained to sin. You defeated sin. So, Lord, we pray as we come to the table that we could just receive this morning. Receive again your forgiveness. Lord, we're worthy because you've made us worthy. You've made us a son and daughter, and it's not because of how good we are. It's all about how good you were. 
and are and continue to be. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we close this morning, Brian's going to lead. Feel free to come forward, um, take the, uh, the cup and the bread. We have a couple different options, um, so feel free to, to grab that. But we'll, we'll take communion together here in a minute.